It's April 6th. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. A good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Wright Report, your daily news podcast. I've got five briefs for you this morning that are shaping America and the world. First, America's electricity grid operators issued a very stark warning yesterday. The nation, they said, might be plunged into darkness because of the rush to solar and wind power. I've got those details. Second, a shocking murder in San Francisco on Tuesday underlines the risk that Americans increasingly face from politicians who embrace the defund the police movement. Third, the new mayor of Chicago is promising to expand his city's status as a sanctuary city for illegal migrants. We'll talk about the national security implications of that policy. Fourth, a new simulation out of China shows how long we would have if North Korea were to fire one of its nuclear weapons at the U.S. I'll give you the number of minutes until impact, plus why the report is really a message from China to America's leaders. Finally, some surprising news out of Afghanistan. They're collecting a record amount of tax revenue, all because the Taliban is less corrupt than the old regime, which of course was backed by the United States. Later, we close out the right report with a question from a listener, plus how you can send me an email if you would like to get your thoughts on the air. But first, let's get to our top story of the morning. America's electricity grid operators issued a very stark warning yesterday. The nation, they said, is facing a growing risk that the power grid could become less reliable or even collapse, all because we are rushing far too fast to embrace solar and wind power. So here are the details, starting with a name that you probably have never heard of. It's an organization called the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, or NERC. It's a nonprofit group made up of America's utility industry, and they work together to make sure that the the bulk power system in the North American continent is healthy and resilient and reliable. Well, yesterday, they held a press conference to warn the country that we are heading towards an energy disaster. So as explained by the organization's president, a fellow named Jim Robb, U.S. utilities are retiring coal, natural gas, and nuclear power plants at an increasing rate because of concerns over climate change. But the problem is that the replacement capacity isn't being built as quickly as those plants that are being retired, which doesn't seem very smart, but anyway. Plus, the new power plants that are coming online are increasingly those that capture solar and wind energy. And that is a problem if you would like electricity when the sun isn't out or the wind isn't blowing. As the folks at NERC explained, those renewable power plants have a fundamental flaw. They don't produce energy. They they harvest energy from the sky. And sometimes uh, the harvest isn't good, like at night or on a windless day. Now, the NERC did say that industrial batteries can help with that problem. Of course, releasing storage uh, at night or during the day. But As NERC President Jim Robb explained, those batteries only hold about four hours worth of energy. And if the sun isn't yet shining at that point or the wind isn't yet blowing, 
again after those four hours. Well, you better hope that you have a natural gas or nuclear or coal power plant for backup. Otherwise, the lights go off, the factories shut down, and we've got rolling blackouts. And that is the fear that the nation's energy providers spoke of yesterday, and they are increasingly seeing this as a strong likelihood in the coming years. So let me just put some numbers to this to give you a sense of, of the problem. So over the past five years, the U.S. has lost 87,000 megawatts of power from reliable forms of electricity like natural gas and coal. So that's enough, by the way, to power about 20 million homes annually. So replacing those 87,000 megawatts have been mostly solar and wind projects. Last year, for instance, about 60% of the replacement power plants were those intermittent sources of energy, again, solar and wind. But even with the batteries of these projects that are associated with the projects, there is still a deficit of megawatts to keep the grid properly balanced. And that's why the folks at NERC yesterday asked, well, actually implored policymakers to fund more reliable energy sources, especially natural gas power plants. But even they acknowledged that will probably not happen, at least not in many places around the country. And that is because, as reported at least by the Houston Chronicle yesterday, climate change activists on the state and federal levels are blocking the construction of natural gas pipelines throughout the country because they see these pipelines and the industry writ large as extending the life of the fossil fuel industry. Plus, most of America's natural gas is actually a byproduct of drilling for oil, which of course helps explain why some politicians and environmental groups are just opposed to natural gas plants, regardless of how reliable or clean they might eventually be. By the way, one more thing for those of you living in California and the upper Midwest, this NERC group issued a report last December that said that those two parts of the country are retiring their coal and natural gas and nuclear power plants at a rate that is faster than the rest of the country. And they're replacing it with either nothing, which doesn't seem smart, or intermittent sources of energy like solar and wind. And because of those factors, the NERC warned residents in those areas that they will likely be hit hardest and soonest with grid failures, especially in California, where politicians there have mandated that, that uh, all new cars in that state have to be electric by the year 2035. So those are the facts and data this morning from America's utility industries. Let me now pivot briefly to my analysis and opinion. So... All too often, the people concerned about climate change encourage us to embrace what they call green energy, whether that be solar or wind or the batteries, of course, that power those things, and naturally the electric vehicles that go along with it too. But folks, the reality is that green energy has problems, and we need to discuss those problems earnestly and honestly. And on the right report, we are going to do that. We're going to be talking about the dirty underbelly of this dirty green revolution. Not because the world shouldn't embrace these things, uh, such as solar panels or electric vehicles. Not at all. But rather, 
this industry deserves the same degree of scrutiny given to it by, say, oil and coal and natural gas. Or if I could just channel the folks at NERC, we need to be honest about the problems of dirty green energy now before we wake up one day and, well, the lights won't turn on. By the way, if you want to start your own research on this, check out the Houston Chronicle article that discusses the NERC's concerns in their press conference. It's a really great piece. It's entitled, U.S. Grid Officials Raise Alarm on Power Plant Closures. More to come. Next up this morning, a shocking murder in San Francisco on Tuesday underlines, I think, the risk that Americans increasingly face from politicians who embrace the defund the police movement. So here are the details. Early Tuesday morning, a man named Bob Lee was walking down a very popular sidewalk in San Francisco. Mr. Lee was visiting the city, having lived there as the founder of a Silicon Valley company called Cash App. But more recently, he was at the tech companies Square and MobileCoin. But regardless, Mr. Lee was visiting San Francisco and he was horrifically attacked, stabbed multiple times. According to media outlets like Fox News and the AP, he tried to flag a driver that was passing by asking for help, but the person drove away after he saw the stab wounds. Mr. Lee then apparently stumbled to a nearby residential tower where he collapsed. And by the time an ambulance was dispatched and he received care at the local hospital, he had died. Now, These kinds of horrific murders do sadly happen in cities big and small all around America and the world, but there's something else here that we really should talk about. San Francisco's mayor, London Breed, announced three years ago a plan to defund the police. So that's, of course, the broader effort by some politicians and activists in the United States, usually associated with the left or progressives, that argue that Crime is best addressed if, well, we involve social services or counseling, not not arresting people or incarcerating them. So getting rid of the police, they say, and using those funds instead to build up, say, the, the social services or counseling sectors there, well, that brings up a different kind of more established and durable form of justice. Well, San Francisco and its mayor, Breed, followed through on this idea. And as planned, well, the city is now short about 540 police officers as compared to previous staffing levels, which of course now begs the question, all right, well, what have the results been of the defund the police movement, at least in that city anyway? Well, this is a tricky one to answer and it gets political pretty fast, but there are some very clear trends that we can actually see and pull from data. And in fact, the mayor herself has acknowledged that things have not gone according to plan. So first, let's talk about that data. Violent crime in San Francisco is up. Robberies, in fact, up 18% year over year. Homicides, like the murder of Mr. Lee, those are up 33%. But the real problem, at least according to Mayor Breed, is that the city has had an explosion of open-air drug dealing, most especially in the Tenderloin district of her city. And that has led Mayor Breed to send a request for urgent help to the federal government, specifically the new U.S. Attorney General that the Biden administration recently appointed. 
In fact, in a letter just last week, she described drug dealers as becoming increasingly aggressive with police, uh, some global ambassadors who work at the consulates in that town, plus city workers and residents. She specifically cited that the Tenderloin District was exploding in violence and shootings surrounding, of course, these open-air drug markets. In fact, she said, quote, our local law enforcement is doing its best to enforce laws against drug dealing, but the scale of the problem is beyond our local capacity, end quote. But just to be very clear, that capacity used to exist in the form of more police officers, but they were fired or not replaced because of these defund the police policies. One final thing to note, to to be fair, Mayor Breed did declare a three-month state of emergency a couple of years ago to address this explosion in violent and drug crimes. And she followed that up with what the San Francisco Chronicle called, um, well, less intensive efforts over these past couple of years to address uh, these increases in crime. But unfortunately, experienced, uh, as they said, mixed results. And sadly, I think that the proof of that mixed result is the murder of Mr. Bob Lee on Tuesday. So those are the facts and data on this horrific story out of San Francisco this morning. I'd simply offer one piece of analysis and opinion for you to consider. As always, take it or leave it. So I actually want to bring to your attention this. Mayor Breed released a statement yesterday about Mr. Lee's murder, and she called it a, quote, horrible tragedy, end quote. And and while it is, and just to be very careful here, details about the murder remain unknown at this hour. What I'm struck by is that this homicide and so many others in San Francisco, just like it, were entirely preventable tragedies. Now, perhaps that's not the case with Mr. Lee. We don't know yet who the assailant was. But it is certainly true when we look at the data. A 33% increase in homicides after decreasing your police force by 540 officers, that was a choice. It was an experiment by a mayor and a political movement to defund, well, what we know works. And now wide swaths of that city are, as the mayor has acknowledged, drug-infested and murderous nightmares. So if I could offer you counsel, if you were, let's say, a mayor or governor or the president, as our communities consider police or justice reforms, I would really encourage us to understand what happened in San Francisco when they defunded the police. The data show that it didn't go well at all. And it's going to take, apparently, federal intervention to fix the crisis, if it can be fixed at all. For your third brief of the morning, we now head to the city of Chicago, where just this week, voters there elected a new mayor. It's a fellow named Brandon Johnson. So he describes himself as a progressive Democrat. And to demonstrate such... He actually introduced a resolution back in July of 2020 to defund Chicago's police, which would have steered funds away from law enforcement to social services, just like in San Francisco. But I bring you news about Mayor Johnson, not because of defund the police, but rather a different priority that he has expressed, and that is 
sanctuary cities. Yesterday, Fox News reported that Mayor-elect Johnson's campaign website has been updated to reflect his desire to extend protections and social services to illegal migrants, who, of course, have crossed America's borders unlawfully and ended up in his city. Now, for listeners who are unaware of exactly what this policy is of sanctuary cities, it's a movement that is another progressive policy that promises to protect illegal migrants from being captured by federal officials who are seeking to deport them. And these cities provide that protection by specifically banning cooperation by their local or state officials, like law enforcement, when they are approached by federal immigration agencies to deport people. But as Fox News is reporting, the website of Mr. Johnson is promising to go beyond that, beyond these normal sanctuary city policies. So for instance, illegal migrants will be given free housing and, listen to this, free legal services to avoid deportation. Plus, in schools in Chicago, illegal migrant children will be given access to, quote, fully funded ethnic studies where students will learn of their home country's histories and cultures, in addition to English, end quote. Now, I bring this to you so that you might consider this sanctuary policy as compared to what we learned two weeks ago from the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. As reported by the Washington Examiner, federal data show that so far in fiscal year 2023, the U.S. government has arrested 69 illegal migrants on the terror watch list. That is, of course, the FBI database of known and suspected terrorists. And so to put those 69 terrorists into context, the 9-11 attacks were conducted by 19 people. It's also important to consider these sanctuary policies in Chicago and beyond as we learn more about another development from the border reported last week. So far in the current fiscal year, Border Patrol agents have apprehended over 4,300 illegal migrants from China. That's double the total number as compared to last year, which is a very curious increase. I'll talk about that more in my analysis and opinion in just a second. But before we get to what I think, let's talk about what you think what the American people think about this issue of open borders, the border in general. According to a January poll from The Economist and YouGov, 66% of Americans support increased border security, with 45% saying that they strongly support it. Now, there are some very interesting divisions within that data. For instance, only 50% of black respondents wanted a stronger border, the same, in fact, is true of Democrats in general. Only half want a strong border. Conversely, over 90% of Republicans say that they want a strong border. And that probably helps explain why Chicago and its largely Democrat politicians are heading in one direction, while other parts of the country, with mostly Republicans, head in the other direction. So those are the facts and data this morning coming out of Chicago regarding these sanctuary city policies. And if I might offer one piece of my analysis and opinion, let me first admit my bias here. My life has been shaped by the September 11th attacks. I started the CIA about two months after America was hit by what we later found out to be radical Islamic terrorists. And I spent most of my career both 
understanding and then neutralizing that threat. So to me, it is remarkable, well, horrifying, actually, to watch parts of this country embrace sanctuary policies and effectively open borders, knowing that some of those illegal migrants will probably be terrorists and that some of those terrorists will actually be protected by these officials, even if unwittingly, again, by people in Chicago, these officials. Ultimately, they're willing to take that risk. And so what I fear, and I think this fear is pretty reasonable, is we are allowing what I would call sleeper cells to establish themselves in this country. Right? These are cells of people who are, are saboteurs that sit and wait for a cause or a country like China to direct them to kill and destroy. Right? That is my great concern in general, but most specifically about this sudden uptick of Chinese illegals at the border. So that's what I'm going to be watching for in the coming months and years. Because the, the data here continue to show that we've got millions of illegal migrants coming into this country, completely unimpeded, or in the case of Chicago, they're actually invited and incentivized to stay. With that, ladies and gentlemen, let's take our first break of the morning. Now, most of you likely aren't going to hear any ads over the next couple of minutes. I wanted to give you all a few weeks without interruption. So stretch those legs, sip on that cup of coffee or juice, and we will be right back. Welcome back to The Right Report. Let's continue our news this morning, heading off to Asia, specifically to the countries of North Korea and their allies in China. So two weeks ago, according to the South China Morning Post, Chinese scientists at a government organization called the Beijing Institute of Electronic System Engineering released a very unusual report about North Korean nuclear weapons and how quickly they would land in America if they were ever fired. So let me tell you what these Chinese officials found about their North Korean friends and their weapons. Well, let me also tell you why this report is so unusual and worrying. So first, Chinese lead scientist, a fellow named Tang Wan, said that North Korea has two-stage nuclear-capable missiles. In fact, they're called Hwasong-15s. And they have an effective range of 8,000 miles. And they correctly said that this range is, quote, sufficient to hit the entire U.S. homeland, end quote. So the Chinese scientists have said that if the North Korean missiles were fired from central North Korea to a central part of the United States, in fact, they specifically pointed to Columbia, Missouri, the U.S. military would be alerted to that firing of missiles within about 20 seconds of their launch. By minute 11, the United States would have fired missile intercepts from Fort Greeley in Alaska. And if those failed, another wave of interceptors would be launched from the Vandenberg Space Force Base in California. But if those systems failed too, or if North Korea were to deploy around 40 or so decoys, Pyongyang's missiles would land in Missouri within 33 minutes of their launch. And odds are, no one in Missouri or otherwise would be alerted or see it coming. So that is sobering. And if you are now switching from coffee to whiskey, well, I don't blame you. But anyway, let's talk about the very odd part of this news. 
China has conducted and released these kinds of studies in the past, but they've been different in one regard. They've not usually named any specific countries or locations that would be hit, especially when the findings were made public. In other words, the Chinese officials would say that the missiles from North Korea would hit a continent like North America or Europe. They would not say the United States or Germany. And the reason for that, at least historically, was that the Chinese regime has well, they tried to avoid using aggressive or confrontational language, especially with and including the United States. But this study is different. They name names. And that matches a related development from about a month ago out of Beijing that we should know about. President Xi of China was quoted in government press as blasting the United States by direct name. In fact, specifically saying that we are harming their economic interests. So here's the quote. Western countries led by the United States have implemented all-around containment and suppression of our country, bringing unprecedented severe challenges to our development. End quote. Now that is a change. Right? Much like the North Korean nuclear report, China is now using more aggressive and specific language directed at the United States. So what are we to make of this? both of the North Korean report and the media reference by President Xi one month ago. Well, let me offer you my brief analysis and opinion based on my work at the CIA. So stepping back and, and looking at this big picture, the likelihood, folks, of military conflict between China and the United States is growing. Beijing knows that, Washington, D.C. knows that, and now you know that. And this increasing risk of war is reflected in these recent statements, whether it be in the media press or this North Korean report. And what China's doing here is twofold. First, because they know that the likelihood of war is increasing, they're putting their own people on notice that America is the enemy. And if war comes, America is going to be the aggressor, and the people must be ready to sacrifice and fight back. In other words, they're prepping the mental battlefield of their own people. And second, the Chinese are also sending a message to Joe Biden and the U.S. military. Right? Beijing is thumping their chests and they're watching to see how the Biden administration responds. And based on my experiences and understanding of Beijing, they want to see how far they can push Biden and his team. And that's because, well, actually, put Biden aside, China is always testing us, watching our reaction, because they know or believe that there will one day be a war, and they want to know what we will likely do. So, my friends, I'm going to be looking more for these kinds of reports, whether it be media or academic, that are coming out of China, because ultimately they are signals, signals of growing threats of war. And the more that I see them, frankly, the more that I'll be concerned. And I'll share that concern with you. Finally, this morning, some surprising news out of Afghanistan. In late January, the World Bank reported that the new government in Afghanistan, which of course is to say the Taliban, has done something pretty remarkable. They've increased the taxes that the government collects. And that's because unlike the prior government that, of course, the U.S. installed, the Taliban suffers from far less corruption. And so the government is able to put more cash into the federal treasury and 
the national budget. In fact, things have gotten so much better in terms of anti-corruption efforts that the organization Transparency International has moved Afghanistan up 24 places in their index of corruption, of course, moving them towards greater transparency. It is, in fact, one of the biggest jumps that the organization has ever recorded. So, folks, no real assessment to offer you on this one. Just, well, if I can offer you some sassy opinion. I'm shaking my head at the foreign policy experts and industry in Washington, D.C. after reading this story. There are a lot of smart people at the Pentagon and State Department who, it appears, are being outgoverned by men with sixth grade educations. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude this morning's episode of The Right Report. But I've got one more thing before I let you go. So enjoy this next break, which will probably be ad-free for most of you. And we will be right back. Welcome back to The Right Report with one more thing before I let you go. Over the past year, as many of you know, I hosted another podcast. Now, during that time, my listeners sent me emails asking questions or sending pieces of feedback. And sometimes folks really liked my analysis and opinion, and other times they hated it. And one of the things that I loved doing was bringing all those voices and all that feedback to you to build friendship and community and to encourage debate. Because who wants another echo chamber? Not me. Well, I am excited to say that we are going to keep doing that here on The Right Report. And I have the first email to share with you. It's from Katie in Brooklyn, New York. And she did not like what I had to say yesterday about the judge in the case regarding former President Donald Trump. So to refresh our memories here, I highlighted reporting from Town Hall News that showed that Judge Juan Merchant gave political donations to the campaigns of Joe Biden and other Democratic causes. Katie took exception to what I said, sort of. So here's what Katie said, quote, I've got a bone to pick with you, Brian. I was curious to know more about those donations. So I did some digging and I discovered that they totaled $35. I mean, come on, Brian, 35 bucks. That's barely enough to cover Uncle Joe's waffle cone with Rocky Road ice cream. It's not really substantial enough to support a claim of political bias on a part of the judge. And I don't mean to nitpick, it's just accusing a judge of bias is very serious business. I'm a lawyer, and I care deeply about our justice system. Now, I don't mean to be too hard on you, Brian, but frivolous accusations of biased judges can also undermine our justice system. Now, look, I think in general your reporting is excellent, and this is just a minor oversight, and it won't stop me from listening to you in the future. End quote. Well, Katie, your note, I got to tell you, was awesome, and I am honored to have gotten it. So, okay, fair point. The donations were modest, although I'm not so sure that we have a total understanding of all of his donations. I need to research that further. But here's the thing. The amounts, at least to me, are less relevant than the donations themselves, right? And here's why. Each of those donations were in one political direction, in this case, to Democrats or leftist causes. And remember, one donation was to a group called 
stop Republicans. All right, and that tells me that irrespective of the amounts, a reasonable person can conclude that the judge has some degree of bias. Right? And in this case, Katie, you got to hear me out on this one. The man donated to the defendant's opponent, Joe Biden. So just stepping back for a minute, if I were sitting in Trump's place, I would want a judge that hadn't donated to anybody. Certainly not my political opponent. Instead, I'd want a judge who was not political at all. In fact, was interested only in the law rather than donations that were trying to stop Republicans or Democrats, even if the amount were small. So Katie, I think that we might just have to respectfully disagree on this one, but I am hearing you. And the rest of your note was just so lovely and reasoned. I was sincerely honored to get it. And I'll tell you, we could probably have a really great discussion and debate about this in person. Maybe over one of those, uh, what did you say, Uncle Joe waffle cones? Although, to be clear, I'm more of a coffee guy, but you are welcome to the ice cream. I'm just watching my figure. So for everybody else, you can write into, right? Questions, comments, feedback, I'll take it all. So this is how you do it. Go to my personal website. It's briandeanwright.com. That's Brian with a Y, Dean like James Dean, Wright, like the Wright brothers, right? So that's briandeanwright.com. Go to the contact section of the website and type away. And by the way, I read everything I get, but sometimes it takes me about a week or two to respond. So my apologies in advance. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude your morning brief. As always, I will see you tomorrow, God willing. Until then, let me leave you with the words that inspire me. They're the creed of every good spy and every wise American. They're from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Good day. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. You know you Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.